and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Andy Martin, who's the former boss of Stratton Park, a former boss of BNP Paribas Real Estate, and by Malcolm Frodson, who's the founder at Real Estate Strategies and former director of research at IPD. Mal, it's fantastic to see you. Andy, great to see you as well. Thank you for coming in. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of disruption in the valuation sphere over the last couple of years. Many, many long-term trends that have had a fair amount of kerosene poured on them by COVID and lots of other longer-term trends, uh, Andy Martin, that have been gestating over many years. Turnover rents, technology change, ESG, and of course, the increasing operationalization of real estate. There, I actually said it once, got it got it right, operationalization. I'm gonna, gonna dine out on, on saying that right for a few minutes now. What do you think, Andy Martin, what do you think the market is doing? Is it turning a blind eye to this stuff? Is it engaging with the grain? Is it going with the grain? Uh, are we seeing a level of reality yet on any of these things? Well, Andrew, I think that the first thing is that, you know, the market, the valuations in the market are reflecting the now. They are being asked to value what is the current value of a property, if properly marketed, et cetera, et cetera, under Red Book. I mean, quite clearly what's happened in the last few years, in the last year or so, is that we've been challenged because, of course, the GFC challenged the market. We had a major fall. And then, of course, COVID has come through recently and changed everything. You know, retailing from home has actually changed the way that retailing's working, turnover rents. Working from home, question mark about uh, offices in the future. Mm. And so we're adjusting to all of this. And of course, as we know, um, we're waiting for a review of the Red Book valuation from Peter Pereira Gray, which is due out soon. And so therefore, I think the market's looking at all of this and I've, there's challenges ahead, but I don't think that what's going on at the moment is anything other than business as normal. What are the questions that your clients are asking you and and, and what is the work that you're doing now versus you know, versus some of the stuff that you were doing when, when we worked together about 10 years ago? Yes, well, I mean, the changes in the retail market, I mean, as Andy said, these are, these are very long-term trends that have been working uh, through the system. And the approach to valuation that we have in this country is is basically a very implicit valuation. So we can't really see what the underlying assumptions are. So we don't really know what the assumption is for growth, what the assumption is for risk. And we've seen these disruptive trends over the last few years, which has led to some pretty dramatic sort of gyrations in the valuation yield. So we've seen retail pretty much you know, fall in value by a third. We've seen industrial property pretty much grow in value by a third. And I would suggest office property is becalmed because actually the investors and therefore the valuers are not exactly sure which direction that market is going to go. So I think that market will move. Um, personally, I think it might move downwards. And at the moment, I don't think the valuers are really taking, you know, taking a view on what's going to happen there with the working from home trend. And in terms of the the actual different approach to research that you're now taking how are you having to advise your clients differently so what are the what are the questions yeah, we, that they're asking you i mean we advise to really look at the underlying i mean in retail it is the underlying turnover that you're actually generating from your assets so how do you get that data because people well, don't people like squirring away that that that's i mean the nice thing about the the move towards turnover based rents is we are now actually seeing the existence of that data I mean, there is no way that you can you can look at the turnover of your centre if you're, you're not actually being provided with that data by the retailers. 
So if we are seeing this move towards more turnover-based rents, then the onus is on the retailers to obviously provide that turnover. And that's going to give us the most amazing, rich data series you can imagine. Before, when you're valuing retail property, you are, you're effectively saying, well, I'm going to look for my market rent. And that may come from this property, but actually it, it may come from the property that's actually not even in the same street. It may come from a property that's not even in the same town. And turnover... What, what does that mean? What if you're looking for a headline rent, you're looking for a recent letting? Well, if you haven't got a recent letting, then you have to take a view. You know, if you've got a, a, you know, 20 years ago, you'd have high streets in the UK where there hadn't been a new letting in the prime strip for, for, you know, getting on five, 10 years. Hmm. So you didn't know what the market rent was. But that was based on a world where people would regularly sign a 15 or 20 year lease. Yes. So now we're going to move much more to a world where the actual income that you're going to receive from your properties is going to be much more based upon the actual performance of your property itself. So it's not going to be divorced from the underlying retailer income. And it must also be the nature of the use of a retailer because different retailers will work on different margins, actually provide different profits, and obviously rent is a residual of uh, revenue and profit. So yeah. Uh, you have to take into account uses as well if you're going to get the right mix. And something which we we simply have not really understood. We haven't really understood what sort of level of rent a um, a fashion retailer can pay versus a food and beverage retailer. Um, and once we understand... You can probably guess, though, can't you? If you've got somebody that's selling cheap sandwiches, they're going to have slightly less money than somebody selling expensive dresses or posh handbags or something well getting that mix right is fascinating and if you're managing a center then you cannot have your center you know with all luxury goods you know that isn't going to work so you're going to get some sort of tenant mix everybody talks about tenant mix they've talked about it throughout my whole time in the industry Mm. the amount of data i've actually seen on which retailers work well with which other retailers you know I've, i've really seen very little But going forward, there is going to be such granular data, such rich data, and we've got such powerful analytical tools now that we're actually going to be able to analyse these turnover trends and really think about, well, okay, well, what retailers do work well with what other retailers? And and Andy Martin, what what does this mean? Presumably it, it means some people are going to do very well and some people are going to do very badly. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are looking at this as a more of a holistic problem now in the sense of, you know, you're looking at placemaking as being a big theme Mm. and it's not just about one unit because, of course, if you take one unit, you're reliant on everybody else to perform in exactly the same way, share your views. If you can change a place and actually have more input into what the whole uh, scenario, the trading scenario, maybe the office scenario. So you create a place which is actually operating seven days a week, then you should create more value. So, And what does this mean for the role of agents? So your former shops, how do they need to evolve as professionals to, to to enable this change? Because I look at the market through my roles, I suppose, as an analyst, researcher, a PR guy, whatever you want to call me, and and aggravator, you would, Mal would probably say. Um uh and 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 but above all a consumer. And I, you know, I look at these places, places where I grew up in East London and places where I shop, whether it's here or in New York or Tokyo. And you know, I think about the places that I like, such as bits of New York and, and 
places like Tokyo that have got a really rich theme of of independence and unique offers, the sorts of things that you you, you find in in you know weird little side streets in Manchester, for example. And it, it's no surprise to me when I talk to people from the listed real estate community and and I ask them about the independent strategies for their shopping malls and they look at me blankly like I've just sort of grown five noses and you think well crikey you know you've been running these you know these billions of pounds of shopping malls but you don't have any strategy around independent boutique retailers and it's no wonder that consumers are sort of thumbing their noses at a lot of this stuff because guess what they can go online to JD Sports they can go online to anywhere other than Primark is online basically. So I think the role has always been to understand what market, how markets are evolving and what is creating the value and what the mixes are. I don't think anything's changed. It's just as Malcolm was saying, we've got a lot more data, we've got mm. a lot more background we can bring in. And I, I think you're finding that a lot, a lot of the large agents now are really looking at data sciences, looking at analytics, looking at the way in which they can piece all this together, aggregate it, and are actually spending a lot of money in this field at the moment to provide better insights for clients. And if you look at a lot of the clients, they're global now. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's let's move on from retail. Um, in terms of offices, Mal, you, you were talking about how you see the office, uh, office market declining. What do you base that on? Um, well, decline is a... Is, it's a relative not, term, like, yeah. like anything in the research world, right? What, what I mean, what I really care about when I look at an office is I, I want to know, am I going to have a tenant? So is there, is there going to be some rent? What's the growth going to be in that rent? Am I going to keep that tenant? So am I going to get any vacancy period? And am I going to have some costs? And what I really want to think about is, is my individual office the right office to actually get those occupiers in? And what's the correct terms for those occupiers? You know, once upon a time, you know, 25-year lease, 42-year lease, you you could rely on these these larger occupiers actually taking that space for that length of time. Yeah, yeah. It's much more, you know, it's a different way of operating, moving towards more serviced level of provision, where you're actually providing more services to that occupier on much shorter lease terms. And this is something that a lot of the listed players are now doing, Landsec, British Land, the likes of Legal in general, people like CBRE are providing their own serviced office offers. How then does that change the dynamic of how you value such assets? Well, I mean, one of the key things to the to the valuation is the covenant. So if I have a, a particular occupier and a particular lease, what was that actually going to do to my multiplier? Mm, but is the covenant an old world term that's not fit for purpose now? Well, what I would suggest is that we can look at the example of where you've got specialist operators so they're intermediaries. So they're taking long leases and they're and they're letting it short. Now, any analysis of an office market will tell you that an office market is very cyclical. Rents go up, occupancy goes up, then rents go down, occupancy goes down. So if you have operators in that market that are thinly capitalized, then they are going to struggle in the downswing. And if they have to get their occupancy above, maintain occupancy above 75%, then they are not going to survive the downswing. So the fact that we saw a shakeout in this the last couple of years. This is why Mark Dixon puts his business into administration every seven years, right? He does. I mean, we have seen it before. I mean, he's done it twice before. You know, we, we really shouldn't have been surprised at what's happened over the last couple of years. And the real lesson from that so is... This is Regis or IWG that we're talking about here, just for clarity. Yep. And, and we work. Um, what you are much better off doing is doing it directly because over the long run, you can actually generate more income from a serviced office than you can a traditional office. 
Yes, it is going to be more. So does that mean that managed partnerships are, are likely to become so the sorts of things that companies like Huckle Tree and the Office Group are doing? Yes. Yes, it's an interesting sort of question whether you'd want to do it directly or, or through a sort of specialist third-party management company. Well, if you think about the student housing or residential space, a lot of those investors would use someone like Nido for student housing, wouldn't they, as, as a way exactly. of... You know, it's an interesting market, student accommodation, because it, it didn't evolve over the last 150 years. It, it, it was new. So it immediately went to this new model. Mm. And the valuation basis immediately went to DCF. You know, it, no Explain one even, DCF. Uh, so a discounted cash flow analysis. So rather than doing a, an implicit valuation where you're, you're, you're wrapping a lot of your risks into a, an all-risk yield, you're actually being much more explicit about what you're actually expecting mm. from the cash flow. What are so the you basis? Think, uh, so uh, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying it, but that's kind of my job. Do you think then that the office market could move to replicate student housing, both in terms of how it's operated with a service focus and in terms of how it's valued? I mean, it's, there's going to be a proportion, and I imagine Already that proportion... Is. Yeah. I mean, how high it goes... It's a very difficult uh, question. I'll say that as a yes. Andy Martin, what's your view on that same I, question? I think absolutely yes, because... There you I, go. You can tell I, Andy's an agent. <laughs> Mal's a researcher. So the, I'm, a journal, I'm a journalist. The, the, the thing <laughs> Sorry, is... Sorry, you're outnumbered here, mate. <laughs> it, is, it is happening. And actually, yes, the cyclicality of this is actually means that people expand massively and then they fail. And you've seen that happen just recently. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, I think you go back to this, this, this style of investing now which is operational and i think a lot of the landlords are saying that they want to have offers at various points of the market so whether it is actually on weekly or monthly or three monthly rentals in order to actually get occupancy and allow people to expand from that within their estate and offer it as part of an operational portfolio and if you look at the whole thesis on 22 bishopsgate that's what exactly it was meant to be that actually the building would create its own village vertically um, yeah. And I think more and more of that is happening now. And, um, and Mal, in terms of the shift to more granular data, particularly spatial data that allows for all of the things that you've been discussing in terms of uh, your point really about comparing two different centres, two different retail centres, two different town centres, and being able to think about the nuances and different specific things that occur locally. What does that then look like for the insight that you can deliver to clients and what does it look like from how, uh, I suppose, how people can think about taking better decisions? Oh, I mean, it, it is such such a game changer. I mean, I, I'm just hoping this data does just come along in time for me to actually get my hands on it and actually just show how powerful it can be. You know, if we do have this level of granularity, you know, I mean, at the moment you think about it, you know, we get a number that often comes out. And so it, who's it, doing it though? I mean, it's, we're talking about this in the abstract, but... Where does this data live? Uh, well, that is, a, I mean, that's a very interesting question because obviously this is a private market. So a lot of the data we're actually interested in does actually reside with the owners. And, and we really have to sort of crack, you know, we, we, we don't want the data sitting in silos that can't be accessed. It's, it's the pooling of the data. That's where the value is extracted. Mm. You know, very few operators are actually big enough to have enough data themselves. When we start pooling the data and when we get very large data sets and then when we link those data sets to other very large data sets and some of those data sets, they might be, you know, social media, uh, they might be map based, um, they could be anything, you know, there's, there's an amazing amount of data that's collected. Yeah. And Andy Martin, one company that you're advising 
in this space is Placemaker, a company that's harvesting huge amounts of data, creating their own algorithms to uh, to crunch and analyze data sets and, and provide that that level of of insight that, uh, that Mal's talking about. Yeah, well, the, what Mal's saying is that effectively there's, there's lots of data around, far too much in some respects. The whole idea is to aggregate. And so finding a tool which will aggregate this data and give you simple insights as a result of it is exactly what Placemake is doing. Mm. And so Placemake will take all the data that we can find in the market, thousands and thousands of pieces of it, millions of pieces of it, plus the data that a user has, put it all together, and then give you insights from it. So this is, if you like, I think, the future. Um, And I think it is actually the very thing when you look at it and you asked about what agents will do, they'll start using tools like this. Mm. So, Mal, how are investment decisions going to change in a world where people are more more focused on using these sorts of tools? And specifically, what what decisions might not have been taken during the last cycle if if more of what you're describing was available yeah well one of the nice things about data is it can pick up these early trends and you can factor that into your analysis you know internet based retailing i mean that built up very very slowly prior to the sort of global financial crisis but it was only really sort of 2009 2010 that really the industry suddenly started to take it very seriously because, you know, when it was growing by 10, 20% per annum, but its share of the market was only 2, 3%, it didn't really matter. Mm. But when its share of the market got up to 10% and it was still growing by 20, 30% per annum, then suddenly that was eating the, the sort of cake of rental value growth. Yeah, but it didn't take Mark Zuckerberg to realize a few, three, four years ago that we probably had too many gap retailers we probably had too many fast fashion stores and that you know fast fashion as as one small example that that wasn't a covid problem that was just a problem of oversupply right this again is hindsight and and what's better is if decisions are, are based on 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 assumptions that are written down yeah so what is actually written down what what actually are you expecting to happen in future mm. And, th- and that's very good because if investors actually write down what is it they think that's actually going to happen, they can actually look back and go, well, mm. did I make a mistake or did actually things happen that we could not possibly have predicted? So how are you looking under the bonnet for your clients to help them achieve that? Well, looking forward, there are certain things that we just have to accept that we, we just don't know what is going to happen. Yeah. But what we can do is we can say, well, we can look back at history and we can look back at the relationship between particular variables and we can be pretty confident that, that certain things will happen. So office development, you know, what return can you expect from office development? That, you know, we, we can estimate that, but that's actually not the most interesting question. What's the most interesting question is, is, is what's the downside? What actually could actually go wrong? And particularly when you're using debt, the downside is particularly important because, you know, if you're if you're 100 percent equity and you lose some money, then you've lost that money. But if you are borrowing and your you know collateral value goes down or your income doesn't come in, then you're into a default default scenario. Yeah. So looking at that downside, mapping that downside, that's where you get the real sort of investment decision making coming through. Um, so we've talked about turnover rents. We've talked about technology and how implicitly some trends around co-working potentially make a lot of uh well they potentially creates a lot of stranded assets in the same respect esg will do that either through the market deciding it doesn't want to rent a particular building or by the regulator saying you're not allowed to rent that building because it's not green enough how are these being factored in both now 
and and from a forward-looking perspective? Yes, I mean, where where we've got, um, you know, investors doing their own asset appraisals, where they are being much more explicit about the costs that are going into maintaining their assets, you know, I am I am relatively confident that, you know, these kind of estimates can be made. You know, 2030 sounds a long way off, but in some ways, you know, it's pretty close. There is a cycle of refurbishment and redevelopment for our assets in the UK. The timetable is quicker than that normal timetable. So you don't normally rebuild your buildings, you know, within such a tight timetable or refurbish your buildings. Mm. But every year, a proportion of buildings are refurbished and a proportion of buildings are redeveloped. And what we're going to see is an acceleration of that trend. The most obvious conclusion is that that's a lot of work that's going to take place in a very short period of time. And we've seen what supply constraints can do to pricing. So what worries me is that we're simply not physically as an industry able to do this amount of work in the time. And then I put my cynical investor hat on and I think, yeah. well, what does that mean? Well, that means pricing's going to go up. You're seeing the evolution of Supercore. You know, green buildings are actually achieving premium prices and this is if you like something that everybody said never happened it is happening now and you've only got to look at some of the regulations that are being put in place sustainable financial disclosure regulation in europe has is now in force and if you want to deal with a large institution uh, from europe you're going to have to start showing what sustainable innovations have gone into the building you've got to show that it's green they won't invest with you otherwise we're going to get the same legislation over here the bank of england is concerned to ensure that we do get carbon emissions going down even gensler in the states has said they need to have something there so this is going to happen it's happening already it's a question of how the industry adapts and how valuation actually looks at this going forward because it is undoubtedly a depreciative Interesting. Yeah. So from a from from your perspective, what should investment managers be looking at to define that downside risk? As you were saying earlier, in terms of construction, and that's well, it's not straightforward, but it's it's at least known in a world where we don't know about the future pricing of carbon, in a world where we don't know what future regulation is going to look like, in a world where we don't necessarily even know how the science is going to evolve. How does an institutional investor that you're working with put a pin in a map? literally figuratively and go right this is what i'm underwriting this against um well in some ways it's 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 very uncertain but in other ways it's the most flagged piece of obsolescence in in our lifetime you know we we know this is all coming our way it's 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 written into legislation in a way that things like the pandemic you know we didn't know that was coming so investors actually have time to plan and i think there is sufficient time in place before 2030 for some relatively straightforward planning to take place. I think there's going to be dramatic impact in terms of the the cost of that work and the timing of that work. But actually, in terms of actual appraisals, I think we can factor that in. You know, it is a cost. Well, what do you do with costs? Well, you knock it off your value. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of, of this dynamic then between occupiers and, and investors which is which is where we started the conversation right in terms of turnover rents and and leases and 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 that disruption to the existing and, and pre-existing status quo T- to what degree then are all of these things going to factor into values well 
I mean, the, the traditional way that real estate was sold was it was a very fixed, very secure income stream, which was priced very much like a bond. Mm. What we're going to see increasingly going forward is that income stream is going to be more volatile, but it is also almost certainly going to be higher. So you're going to get a higher amount of income, but it's actually going to be valued slightly less. So I think the income return, or, you know, Citrus Paribus, will actually be higher going forward. The fact that interest rates are so low makes it look like it's it's actually lower. But I think actually real estate is becoming more of an income asset. It's a more of an operational asset. It's less of a bond type asset. And, um, you know, I think this trend, I mean, it's it's... It's been in place now for, for several years. It, there's only one way that it's going. And, and Andy Martin, just wrapping things up then, uh, assuming that you agree with Malcolm, what what does that then mean for the way the, the, the surveying industry, the valuations industry and, and the agent community has to do its job? Well, I'm not entirely in agreement because I, I, I think that, you know, there is a spotlight on the industry. You know, 40% of carbon emissions are coming from real estate stock. 20% mm. of it is embedded in the materials we're using. So in other words, we've got to recognize that there's a bigger task ahead of us on understanding exactly how to tackle this. And I think that, um, you know, it's become evident these last two weeks as we're in COP that people want to make changes. Occupiers are pledging to become carbon neutral. Investors are pledging to become carbon neutral. Advisors have got to understand what that means and how you do it. And of course, you know, whilst income is key, income returns, leases have got shorter. So in other words, a lot of these things will actually have to be dealt with as expiries happen, tenants want to renew, they'll have to meet the new EPC standards by 2030. And I think agents um, and advisors and indeed investors have got to educate themselves as to what changes they need to make now to make a difference by 2030. So as we move into 2022 then, Mal, just for your own closing thoughts, what do you see happening within Q1 as we look across all the sectors of commercial real estate and as you think about how people respond to Christmas trading? Well, actually, in terms of retail, I mean, we, we've, we've taken the view that a lot of the damage has now been done. We needed a shakeout of some of our retailers. You know, a lot of our retailers, you know, they were no longer fit for purpose. Most of those have gone. I mean, the department stores have mostly gone. Um, and actually, it wasn't so bad. And uh, many of the property companies have actually said, oh, actually, our centres are better without these department stores. We can actually put different occupiers in. And the department stores were paying virtually no rent anyway. So we're actually generating more value. Shopping centres, it's very interesting because you've got these two contrasting trends. One is that the income is becoming you know, more operational and there's a there's a threat from internet retailing. And the yeah. other is the cost side, which we've discussed. How many centers are going to be capable of generating enough income to meet these CapEx costs that they're going to have to incur over the next 10, 15 years? And what proportion of the centers are simply going to be unviable? You know, we, 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 we often talk about the, the market bifurcating, and I think that's exactly where we are. There's, there's going to be a cutoff, exactly where that cutoff is going to come is is going to be interesting and the government you know at times like this you need leadership and so far the government has given us precious little leadership and it's, it's one area where i think the rics should step in but you know the government's approach there on on the rates you know it was just a massive huge missed opportunity 
And unfortunately, I think the high street and, and, and centres are, are going to be the victims of that. And I'm sure we're going to be lamenting in the next few years about, you know, why was that decision taken or not taken? Andy, any thoughts on that from a, in terms of those policy failures that, that Mal's talking about? Well, I think the biggest disappointment was the continuing um, license not to pay rent. Um, and I think probably that was a, an industry issue in perhaps not fighting hard enough, whether that's BPF, RICS or whatever. But uh, we were collecting that data with Remit and we did submit it. But of course, what it's meant is that there's another huge embedded problem in indebtedness, because unless you write off that rent, it's still due. Mm. Um, so I, I think that probably that was allowed to carry on too long. But we also know that there were problems there. I think the rates issue is something that should have been dealt with some while ago. Um, and that would also provide some relief in the high street, which is necessary. Well, I don't think there'd be many people there that would disagree with you. But thank you. Thank you very much, Andy Martin. Thank you very much, Malcolm Prodgen. Uh, and obviously, we will, we will revisit all of these topics again and again over the coming months. And, and very much looking forward to hearing anyone's views on what the repurposing of stranded shopping centres will look like. Maybe it will be a blend of build to rent. Maybe it will just be uh, lots and lots of pocket parks. Let's hope for let's hope for some innovation. Let's hope for some creative thinking on that front. But um, thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify. Just search Propcast. Do share this with your teams, with your colleagues. Give them early Christmas present. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you. Bye bye.